1: Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 203, recorded May 9th, 2015.
0: So today we're doing a couple of Wild Storm one-shots. Uh, one is a Voyager story called Avalon Rising. And the other is a Star Trek, the original series, for the most part, uh, story entitled... Uh, what is it called?
1: Uh, Enter In- the Wolves. Enter
0: the Wolves. Enter the Wolves.
1: Yeah, and I'll probably probably preempting you a little bit here, but I'll tell you, I wasn't I wasn't expecting much out of these two comics, but I really like both of them quite a bit.
0: Yes, they were both really well done. I thought very enjoyable.
1: Right. So we see some of our favorite characters at their best, and you f- you were find out a little bit of history. That occurs when we first come into contact with the Cardassians, which is pretty cool. And then this totally out of left field Avalon Rising thing. Just looking at the cover, I wasn't expecting much at all, but really good.
0: Now the cover makes you think that it's uh, going to be uh, kind of a joke story, <laughs> almost. But uh, it was good, quite good.
1: Yeah, it was kind of like... I'm not much into the like fantasy novels and stuff but you know looking at this it was like okay uh star trek meets fantasy dragon fiction okay and i wasn't expecting much but it was quite good not not that there's anything wrong with fantasy dragon fiction but
0: um you're not a big game of thrones fan
1: well okay game of thrones is different
0: Mm. game of thrones is different how is it different
1: Because it's good. <laughs> and, and
0: all the rest of Dragon Fiction, as you put it, is not good? Uh,
1: I, I've actually never read Dragon Fiction. So I don't know. It could be great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Ranked. Okay. It's just, well, I wasn't expecting much from it, and it turned out to be pretty good.
0: No, I was expecting it to be a holodeck adventure story,
1: but oh. it's not. As I was thumbing through the pages, I didn't, I didn't quite know what to expect. But once I found out what was really going on, it pretty cool.
0: Right. So maybe we should just get into it and then uh, talk about it later. I agree. Okay. All right. Well, this story, again, entitled Star Trek Voyager Avalon Rising, uh, came out September of 2000. Written by Janine Ellen Young and Dozel Young. Art by David Roach. Letters by Nagme Zand. Colors by Dan Brown. Cover by David Wenzel. Designed by Alex Sinclair. Edited by Jeff Marriott. Special thanks to Paula Block. So the cover is kind of a watercolory type type uh, artwork. It shows the doctor riding a medieval decorated white horse. With all the, you know, the blankets and stuff on it, I guess. I don't know what they're called. But uh, next to him is a young man also riding a horse, but he's wearing some sort of a light armor, and he's holding a banner. And on the banner, we see several Starfleet logos upon it. And they're running, walking through a uh, countryside picture. Quite nice. So the story starts in a deep, dark woods. An outlaw named Chakotay is trying to avoid the attention of a knight in full armor, adorned with Starfleet insignias. The armored knight turns out to be Janeway. The two fight, Janeway with a sword and Chakotay with a staff. Eventually, Janeway is victorious and offers the outlaw a position aboard her sailing ship. She states that they are both lost in these seas. And she would like to offer him a position as first mate aboard her craft. Chakotay agrees, and the two clasped the two clasp gloved hands in agreement. The story over, we find ourselves at a campfire. Several people are sitting around it and eager to hear another story. They throw out suggestions like the Ice Queen, the Redeemed Pilot, the Ware Lady, and the Doctor. At the mention of the Doctor. The storyteller relents and begins to tell the story of the Doctor and the Blind Tower. Years ago, a squire named Wayland and his knight master are attacking a dragon. The dragon gets the better of them and the knight is severely injured. Wayland is too frightened to do anything. Suddenly, a beam of light strikes the dragon and it falls. A man in strange garb tells them that he's the Doctor. Before he can help the knight, the dragon wakes and destroys the doctor's equipment. Waylin now has the courage and he kills the dragon with his sword. Without equipment to help, the knight dies. Waylin offers to take the strange man to his castle to meet the king. En route to the castle, the doctor tells strange tales to the young man. He talks about his ship that roams the seas seeking out new life and new civilizations. Always in quest for peace. Waylon is greatly moved by these stories. He is also frightened when he sees that the Doctor's feet have become transparent. The Doctor states that his mobile emitter has been damaged by the dragon, and they must hurry. Eventually, they make it to the castle, and the King offers to help the Doctor, who is now called the Wizard. He will help the Doctor find the mysterious tower nearby that is guarded by generations worth of renegades the doctor the doctor will leave at first light during the night he finds wayland getting beaten up by the king's men due to the death of the knight. they blame wayland for the death the doctor stops it and tells the young squire about the ice queen She was abducted by an evil force, and we see a picture of her with her body encased in what looks like an insect's exoskeleton. The doctor, with all of his power, was able to remove most of the evil from her. But he knows that she herself must be the one that fully embraces the light and renounces the last of the evil. The next day, the king gives the maps over as promised. He also offers the doctor several knights to accompany him. The doctor refuses, which enrages the king, who tries to stab the doctor with a sword. Everyone is quite surprised when the sword passes harmlessly through him. The doctor makes his departure and decides to take Weyland along with him. Once outside of the castle, the doctor explains why they are going to the Blind Tower. He explains that they received a message from a dying race, That admits to placing powerful weapons in a tower on a primitive world. Their last request was that the weapons be removed from the planet before the locals could find them and destroy themselves. For some reason, Captain Janeway is not able to beam anyone down to the planet except for the Doctor. As the Doctor and the Squire travel, the Doctor tells the tale of the redeemed pilot. It seems that Knight Janeway was able to save a traitor from a noose, and she offered him a position aboard her ship. Eventually, they get to the tower. They are able to grab one of the guards watching over it. The man tells them that there's only ten guards left, and he explains that their numbers have grown quite small during the several generations that their people have been watching over the tower. Waylon wants to kill the guard. But the Doctor points out all the teachings from his stories, that a foe is just a friend in the making. Waylon relents. The duo make their way to the tower and are able to open a secret door. As they race up the tower, the other guards arrive and give chase. At the top of the tower, the Doctor is able to stop some ion interference, and Janeway, Seven of Nine, and Chicote beam down. The guards are all shocked to see people appear out of nowhere, and they stop fighting. Janeway prepares to beam all the weapons and advanced tech back up to the ship. The doctor asks for five minutes alone with Wayland. She agrees. Once alone, he tells Wayland his last story. This is of a wizard who wanted to help everyone everywhere. In order to do this, he made copies of himself and put them on all the crafts within the realm. Eventually, when Janeway's wizard was killed, the doctor was activated. Though he knows that he's just a copy of the original wizard, he knows that he can be whatever he wants. Wayland takes this to heart and knows that he can strike out his own path. The doctor takes a sword and knights Wayland as Lieutenant Wayland. With that, he departs. Sometime later, Lieutenant Wayland is gathering his clan up into his ship. They are all showing everyone a mutual respect despite rank. As the sails unfurl, we see that they are emblazoned with a Starfleet logo. The
1: end. Cool. So he inspired the kid Wayland to become a ship's captain full of knights going out and doing great things. Wonderful. Right. So he finds his destiny, his, the thing he wanted to do. I think that's great. Yeah, I really, really like this story. Yeah.
0: Uh, unlike you, I'm not... Uh, opposed to dragon fiction,
1: (laughs) as you like to put it. (laughs) Fantasy dragon fiction, actually. Right. But
0: uh, I haven't read a ton of it, but what I have read I really really enjoyed, and I really enjoyed this. It it, uh, was really good. And I liked how we got to see all the stories, all the backgrounds for the characters we know, but with a Knights of Camelot kind of spin to it.
1: It was quite good. When I was flipping through the comic and seeing some of the uh, the pictures and the drawings of like uh, Janeway as this golden knight or something, it was like, what kind of crap is this? I was thinking, oh <laughs> my, what, what are they, how, how are they? What? What? So what? Voyager crashes and then years go by and then they somehow re- revert back to feudalism or something. It's like what? What's going on here? And then when I started reading, it was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Loved it. Yeah. And, and I, I love how the Doctor was featured here. It's a Doctor adventure. Right. And, and not Doctor Who, but it's, it's, it's a really good Doctor adventure. Because if there's one thing I love about this Doctor, he is our sarcastic, sharp-tongued, funny guy. And I just love some of the lines.
0: Yeah, I think that the, uh, the writers really nailed his character. He was quite good.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, there was a point towards the end when they're trying to get into the tower and stuff and Whalen's doing all these things to this guard that he captures and then the doctor just says, Will you tell us how many of you there are or am I going to have to use some magic? I thought that was <laughs> great. And there was another point when Seven has a Captain Obvious moment and the doctor says, uh, You boys don't miss a thing, do you? Uh, just really good lines.
0: Right, very good. And I like in regards to the doctor. I liked how it kind of we got a little insight on the doctor that we that I don't think I've ever picked up on is that he knows that he's just a copy of somebody else. You know, you don't. I don't ever remember that really being addressed in the story, uh, the the series. Right. Yes, he knows that he looks like Doctor Zimmerman and blah blah blah. But uh, here, I really got the feeling that. You know, he he feels like he was he started off as just a, a copy, just a generic copy of another person, and now he's making efforts to be his own person. Which I never really got that he was trying to not be Doctor Zimmerman. He was just didn't know who he was not supposed to be, you know, kind of thing. Right. So uh, I, I like that it kind of kind of shed a different light on him that I, I hadn't seen before.
1: Yeah, that and the idea and they- I mean, they talk about this in the show, but the fact that he has awareness, I mean, he knows what he is, and he seems to have the awareness that you and I have about being, quote, alive, of course, in his being quite a different way. And you know he has that, but it's like in this story with some of the things they were talking about, including the same part of the story that you just mentioned, it's like he really knows he's alive, which is um, there's consciousness, you know. Self-awareness there, which is uh, pretty cool. Yep. I mean, not unusual, Data did did too, and Hal to some degree maybe, but that's kind of a big deal. Right. That's a big deal. Yeah, Robbie the robot never really seemed self-aware. No. Well, actually he probably was because he was very advanced. Now, what, B9, the robot in Lost in Space? I'm not so sure about him. He always seemed a little dim-witted to me.
0: All right, so Robbie the Robot is from? Uh, he is
1: from uh, Forbidden Planet.
0: Forbidden Planet. Okay, I always get those confused.
1: Right, well, they're almost the same robot, aren't they? Just change the swap the heads out. and Well, okay, one guy has legs and one guy has tracks, but similar feel. Right, right. That was, a, again, what an amazing movie Forbidden Planet was.
0: Yes, so Leslie Nielsen.
1: Yes. Leslie Nielsen as fantastic a fantastic actor. Yeah, he made a kick-butt captain. I mean, he was a template for Kirk. I mean, obviously. He even got the girl. Anyway.
0: (laughs) Because up until then, movies never
1: had, they never got the girl. Is that what you're trying to say? No, no, I'm just saying. (laughs) No, I get you. I mean, I think Roddenberry actually said this, too. But, I mean, he, you know, he drew inspiration from Forbidden Planet and, Obviously, things to come. So sure enough. Anyway, the first time we see Captain Janeway, I think she looks really cool in that full-page drawing.
0: Oh, she's fantastic. The the artwork in this was great. I loved seeing right. the uh, like I said the this, the medieval spin on all these characters. And Janeway right. and seven and nine were probably my two favorites. Yeah.
1: Yeah the the cover I can't the cover wasn't fantastic, but the inside art was great. I agree. Right. Let's see. Um... Yeah. So, in
0: regards to that
1: uh, that Janeway picture, um, right?
0: What do you think about the sword? I mean, it, it seems a little unwieldy. It has yeah. I guess they're trying to get some Starfleet swoosh type look to it by having the the tip of the sword this giant like spearhead looking thing. But uh, I thought maybe that was a little much. Didn't look very practical.
1: No, it doesn't look practical at all. And not only that, it looks kind of like like nasty i mean it's like spiky and barbie um, right <laughs> and like i don't know it looks i mean if you actually got that into somebody you'd never be getting it back out again i mean it's really a fantasy sword right
0: but i loved all the little nods to the the starfleet swoosh in like her belt and her yep.
1: headband and things like that yeah you couldn't get away from it it was all over the place including that little crown that um that that king fashioned for uh, the doctor. The wizard. Which
0: coincidentally looks just like the crown that cool. Way's
1: wearing. Exactly. And of course all of these depictions, I mean, these are just stories. So whoever the people hearing the story, it's going to be their interpretation. Right. So, I mean, Chakotay doesn't have a tattoo. Uh, he has a big old scar, right?
0: Oh, you so know, I not, didn't notice that.
1: Well, at least part of him. Oh yeah, you're right. No, I I, I don't think I don't think he has a tattoo at all. which would which would make sense for these these people uh, because they don't know facial tattoos probably from any you know. Uh, So, the idea that Jacote doesn't have a tattoo makes sense. Yeah, 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 and that's that's another thing that I loved
0: about it because everything that that the the doctor said, I don't think he put the fanciful spin on it he just said it as it is she's my captain you know the captain right. took on this pirate this outlaw and you know they joined forces and then you us hearing that we know that they're starfleet captains and then somebody else on you know that from their point of view picture this fanciful thing i sure. really liked it i yeah. i thought that was well done right i agree the only part I didn't like is when the doctor kept referring to himself as wizard. I wish he would have just kept calling himself doctor, doctor. and using normal terminology, and then we get to see how they interpreted it.
1: Right. Well, he was adapting. Right. right. Of course, it isn't all. You know, there's a few things that kind of bug me about the story, though. Although 99 percent, uh, kudos to the production staff. Like the king is still treating Wayland like. Or Wheeland, whatever his name is, uh, like he's a boob. When he killed a dragon, excuse me, he killed the dragon. Right. And it's like, did the doctor forget to mention that? Did Wheeland forget to mention that? Because when they're back from, you know, to the, back to the kingdom and stuff, and talking to the king and stuff, and he's saying, "Oh, doctor, you're so wonderful" and stuff, and uh, Wheeland, you're an idiot. It's
0: right. Like, right.
1: No, Wheeland killed the dragon. Anyway, whatever. It seemed I think they just
0: had to treat him poorly so that the doctor would agree to take well, him.
1: Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, yeah, they had to make it make sense why, in the end, he would, you know, leave his home, leave his his city state or whatever, and uh, and go off on this other adventure thing. And considering, you know, what what jerks everybody is <laughs> back at the city state, uh, they made it very easy for that decision to happen. So right. I guess if you make him a nice guy uh, who accepts him then that doesn't make that as as logical a transition for Whelan. Anyway, so it just seems a little forced, though. And speaking of forced, it's like, why exactly is the Doctor the only person that can do this mission?
0: That was the part that I... That was the really hard part that I had. Right. I still don't understand. Yeah, so there's ion storms or something. But uh, they don't they, mention that until the very end. I mean, when we see the flashback of her sending... Sure. They don't mention why he can be the only one.
1: Yeah. And I figured there was some reason why the Doctor had to do it. I mean, because otherwise, why would you send the Doctor alone? It's like, at least an away team or something. Why does he have to be alone? I mean, I'm glad he was alone. This, This would not have worked the same way if it was an away team. So, wonderful that he was alone. It just seemed the circumstances of that happening was a little forced. But... I'm just mentioning it, but I completely give it a pass because it allows us to, to see a good Doctor story on his own.
0: Right. But but also, I mean, okay, so there's ion storms. They can't get yeah. a shuttle through there. They, they can't do beam that. down. But
1: Yeah, so how did he get down? But how did place? he get down? I mean, they just <laughs> – Did they just, like, put the hollow emitter inside of a neutronium casing and throw it? That's what I'm wondering, yeah. Just, like, gravity <laughs> takes it, take effect and right. pops out at the end. I don't know. I don't know, do oh, not know i I had the same same concern, yeah, uh, and then he's able to poke a hole in the ion storm using the towers technology that he's never seen before,
0: well, I'm thinking the tower is what was causing the ion
1: storm, maybe, oh, okay, so when you shut down the towers systems, okay, okay, right. yeah okay, I guess that makes sense, of course, if you do have ion storms that were. Artificial in nature. You would think your enemies might say, "Hey, what's going on here?" It's supposed to be a yeah. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, the alien. I'm not going to think too much. Yeah, yeah, the aliens' enemies might think that. So speaking of the aliens, real quick, uh,
0: you you don't find that. uh, So they're a dying wish. They they were losing the war against the enemies, the enemy aliens. Right. And so, as a last-ditch effort, they. Send out a message that says, "Hey, if you're a good person, will you come and uh, take these weapons off this planet before these people blow themselves up with it?" Yeah. Um,
1: That's it. That's what they said.
0: <laughs> seemed seemed a little simplistic, and yeah, I mean, these people are really nice people that, that they were that concerned about the, these other people while they're dying.
1: Right, and 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 they must have had a communications boy or something, right? Right. Because they're able to scan the ship and know that Voyager people are nice and will help. Scan, not only scan the ship, but
0: scan the computer banks. Right. You would think that there would be some firewalls on Voyager's computer banks to prevent something like that from happening.
1: You'd think so, wouldn't you? I agree. So again, add to the list of things that are a bit forced. (laughs) But they kind of have to happen for the story's sake.
0: Right. So uh, in regards to the story, all the flashback stories, did – Anyone really jump out at you that you really liked or
1: didn't like? Um, let's see. I kind of like the the Jacoté Janeway one because I just thought it was pretty good because I didn't know what was going on. Right. It was like, well, wait a minute. I mean, even if they crash landed on this planet and they reverted back to primitive days, whatever. Yeah. Well, why are they? they they're like redoing this? exactly. Right. This happened already, but in real life, well. uh, star trek real life it didn't make any sense but then when i found out what it was it was like oh i kind of i I like that one right i I like that one i guess the best the borg one with seven of nine eh, it was okay uh the tom paris one was even less impressive yeah
0: yeah the tom paris one was the the one that i thought was just she cuts the noose off of him and says hey i used to serve with your father yeah he was a good guy so you must not be so bad come be my pilot
1: exactly I want the best. Yeah,
0: so uh, I didn't really care for that one. The seven of nine one, I just really liked the artwork of her in this exoskeleton looking Borg outfit, and then right. uh, the picture of the Doctor looking like a sorcerer with all the, the green magic swirling oh, yeah. hands and stuff. That was, that was kind was of really a good.
1: Cool. That yeah. was a good panel.
0: And then uh, again, uh, the I agree with the uh, the opening story. I really liked it. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Um, the, one, the one thing that I kind of, they keep talking about, but we never actually got to see, was the Lady, Which I'm assuming wh- is Abtora's story. Alana's story.
1: Yeah. Okay, that's, okay, so that was it? Because oh. I didn't know what they were referring to also, but I didn't, I didn't see Seven of Nine mention that list. Was uh, the that ice, the Ice Queen or oh, Ice the, Maiden? the Ice Maiden or yeah. whatever. Okay, that's the Ice Maiden. Okay, fine.
0: Yeah, I guess it must yeah, be the where lady who became the shipwright. I'm assuming that meant that means oh, uh, the
1: shipwright. Okay, that somebody takes care of the ship. Yeah. yeah. Cool.
0: And then the wise okay. commander of the guard, I guess, is Tuvok. Right. Right. We don't see his story either. No.
1: But that's okay because you see him in the Ice Queen one or Ice Maiden one or whatever they're calling. Right. Selardine. You see him there, but you don't get the the backstory. Hey, you're not going to do it for everybody. Come on. Sure. It'd be too long. Yeah, No, I liked it. Um, the one thing, the one little jump in logic,
0: in addition to uh, the king uh, treating Waylon bad, mm-hmm. is why uh, the king just gets so upset that he's not going to take the four knights and just right. stabs him. I yeah. mean, the night before, he's talking about how honored guests, blah, 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 uh-huh. and then the next <laughs> morning, he's like, I'm going to stab you
1: because you won't take my knights. Exactly. And then, then what does the sarcastic doctor say as he sits there on the ground, unbelieving? Something like,
0: yeah. "Well,
1: your, hospi- your your reputation for hospitality is taking a step or two back." Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Another very good witticism by the doctor, who seems to be having fun whenever he can. Right. Yeah, that was kind of hard to believe, wasn't it? But hey, they're jerks. Yeah, they're Just yeah. a bunch of poop heads. They're all poop heads.
0: And that's why it's okay to bend the Prime Directive a little bit so that uh, the Doctor's creating a, a better society with Wayland and the guards.
1: At least, yeah, at least those people. Which really, Wayland and those people, handy that those people came along. Basically, they have no place to go. They don't have a, uh, a purpose in life. So, how wonderful that they ended up with one. <laughs> so, the last thing I have to say is there's a panel drawing of where the aliens that have the weapons store where their ship is destroyed it's not a full page mm-hmm. panel but it's pretty big and it's pretty cool there's a lot of lot of ships shooting and stuff and when i first saw that main ship explode so there's a big explosion more or less in the middle and then i looked at the rest of the ship that wasn't blown up and i was like looking at it going because when i first looked at this panel quickly as i was thumbing through i thought well is that voyager
0: Oh, right, like the nacelles?
1: Yeah, because if you look at the back of the alien ship, the nacelles are vaguely Voyager-shaped. Not exactly. And kind of the engineering section is, again, vaguely. And then as it goes forward in the ship, it could go forward into kind of like a Voyager-shaped, quote, saucer section. But that's all blown up, so you can't see that. But then you look at the other smaller ships in the background, it's like, okay, well it's the front part is not voyager shape but if you look at just the back part i was wondering are they showing voyager blowing up when i was first thumbing through right um and it's like was that just happenstance that they made it that shape or did they purposely make it that shape i i don't know i
0: think that is probably just a coincidence and i think it's backwards so what you're calling the nacelles part on on voyager is really the the front part of this of these ships so I think the the engines uh, are being blown thought... out of that that panel that you're talking about. Because if you look at the other pictures, and it shows the you know the fire coming out of the the back of the ships.
1: Well, I, I, I thought they were coming at each other.
0: So oh, I thought they were being chased. They were
1: running away. Okay, I, I thought. Okay, well.
0: Yeah, you might be right though. Maybe I, that that I one on the were... top is firing and not.
1: Right, know, I, I see what you're saying because. On the one ship, and on the one ship only, it looks like there's fire in the front. But because this is not a gold key comic, <laughs>
0: um,
1: I'm thinking that's uh, some kind of weapons fire. But I don't
0: know. Okay, yeah, you might you're, you might be right. But anyways, you're right. It, it it did look. I didn't see it until you mentioned it, but I can see it looking like the Voyager tail end,
1: right, and the saucer so,
0: section being exposed.
1: Yeah. So if you if you don't look at it. If you look at it quickly, it kind of gives you that feeling. Gave me that feeling. So it's like if I was just like at the newsstands, you know, flicking through pages, and I saw this one, I was like, "Oh, it's Voyager." Anyway, I might buy it. I don't know. Yeah, you would. I, I don't. I don't know if that was on purpose or not.
0: So I thought the aliens, the the ones that uh, created the tower, mm-hmm. they kind of look like the aliens from Enemy Mine. I thought
1: a bit, a little bit. Louis Gossage Jr.-ish. Right.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Only you could never tell that because the makeup was so thick. But, uh, yeah, I think you're right. And that was a fantastic movie, by the way, just as a side note. I enjoyed that, too. That has been so long since I've seen that. Was that the 80s?
0: It was, Early
1: yes. 90s? Or, no, it was the '80s. 80s. Yeah. Definitely 80s. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that was a great movie. And if you ever have a chance to read the book mm-hmm. uh, that it's based on, yeah. Also a fantastic story. Huh. It, it it really goes into uh-huh. um, more of what happens after um, they get found by the aliens or by right. the humans. Yeah, okay. it, it's it's quite
1: good. Cool.
0: There's other books in the series. I just never read them. Oh, I just really? read
1: the first two. But oh, there's a whole series of books. Huh.
0: But they came out way later. So th- there was an original. There was a there was a short story, and then. The same author wrote the novelization of the movie, but he expanded on it quite a bit. So he expanded hmm. on both his short story and the movie itself, which was oh. really good. And then years and years later, uh, I guess he came out with a continuation, but uh, it was like a small printing run or whatever. Uh, I've seen him online going for more than I'm willing to pay for a book. but
1: <laughs> Oh, okay.
0: But it's definitely on my list of one of these days I'm I'm going get, to get, get around to it. Right.
1: Cool. Okay. Another excellent suggestion that I hope I can find time for. You should. All your free time. Mm, Yes.
0: All right, that was my last comment on uh, this issue.
1: Cool. I'll do the second one, which is Enter the Wolves. Published date, 2001. Creative team A.C. Crispin and Howard Weinstein. Some very old names around uh, Star Trek stories. Penciler Charles Moda, inks Keith Aiken, John Nyberg, Derek Fridolphs, colors by Wildstorm FX, letterer Larry Barry. love saying that, cover by Moda and Aiken, design Amber Bennett, which by the way, I don't know what design is in a comic, but Amber did it, editor Jeff Marriott, special thanks to Paula Block. The cover presents the upper torso of Ambassadors Spock and Sarek in the top half. In the bottom half we see a Cardassian ship next to two Cardassians on either side of Sarek's wife who they are restraining. Forty years prior to Torek Nor becoming Deep Space Nine, the Cardassians are an unknown quantity to the Federation. A Scout-class Cardassian ship is making its way from Cardassian to Federation space. Ferrying two members of a spy team who are on their way to Vulcan. They speak over an encrypted channel to Gul Nadok about their spy plans. They will make overtures of peace and interest in a trade deal, but that is just a smokescreen that will let them execute their real agenda. They also discuss how their old enemies, the Lagarans, will be at the diplomatic conference. The ship is hailed by a Vataruban patrol ship to submit to a security scanning. The slimy Cardi's respond and act as if they are capitulating. When they get close enough, they fire upon the Vataruban ship and totally destroy it. Meanwhile on Vulcan, Dr. McCoy is attending the wedding of Ambassador Sarek to his new wife Perrin. Perrin is a beautiful earth woman that is very young particularly for Sarek that is quite past his hundredth birthday. McCoy can't believe Spock did not show up for his father's wedding. McCoy speaks to Perrin later where she tells the good doctor about her and Sarek's meeting and eventual courtship. Perrin says Spock did not even have the courtesy of replying to their wedding invitation. Sarek joins them in their conversation. Perrin is a linguist who so happens to have thoroughly researched the Cardassian language for updates to the Universal Translator database. She comments how secretive the Cardassians are. No Federation ship has been allowed into their territory. McCoy wonders aloud what they are hiding. Sarek says that is a logical question and a sound basis for caution. The next day, on a space station high above Vulcan, McCoy Records a log entry that recounts the Cardassian envoy Lorjak's speech. He spoke perfect federation standard, but what he said was double talk about peace, cooperation, and friendship. Sarah kicked off the debate phase by counseling caution in dealing with the Cardassians and was garnering agreement among his colleagues when a voice of disagreement came from a most unexpected source. It is Ambassador Spock entering the room with the sun at his back. And he is advising just the opposite course of action to what his father has just done in the very public setting. Most surprising. While attention is on the debate, there appears to be a Vulcan skulking around secured areas of the space station, talking to unseen people on what appears to be a Starfleet tricorder. It turns out to be one of the Cardassians in disguise, speaking to Taljan on the Cardassian ship. Their plans to welcome the Ligarian delegation are made more difficult by guards stationed where the reception is to take place. Later that night on Vulcan, Sarek and Spock are walking in the gardens of the family villa. They speak of Amanda. Since she left her gardens to Spock, Sarek offers the rest of the property and villa to Spock, while he and Perrin relocate to Chikar. Spock accepts. They leave the garden to return to the space station to make final preparations for the Lagaran's reception. Spock congratulates Sarek on getting the race to attend. They are very particular in their interactions with outsiders. They attach such significance to colors and shapes, all reception attendees must wear very specific robes and headpieces. The elephant on the table is finally set free. As Sarek tells Spock, his position regarding the Cardassians is flawed. Spock says it is Sarek who is clinging to logic and the lesson of the past too tightly while ignoring new information that should be factored in. On the space station, Ambassador Spock and Admiral McCoy have their first chat since Spock arrived. They spiritedly discuss Spock's missing the wedding. Spock discloses his disapproval of the fact Perrin is old enough to be his granddaughter. Elsewhere, Sarek and an Andorian Starfleet admiral named Thelion inspect the Ligarans' aquatic environment, whose fluid is deadly to most other members of the Federation. We find out that the Lagarans are a very insular society, with large iridium resources and little military capability to protect it or themselves. They are also in the same sector as the Cardassians. Sarek has been working to open relations with the Largarans for 54 years. Elsewhere, at a diplomatic gathering, Spock is actively working to gather acceptance of the Cardassian trade deal. Perrin is greatly angered that he would betray Sarek and continue to undermine his position like this. She has to force a private conversation with Spock, who says he is occupied when she makes her request for it. She attempts to communicate to him how deeply his very public actions have wounded Sarek. Spock makes his points. In the end, Perrin makes it plain Spock is no longer welcome in their home. Spock makes it plain he will not be visiting Shakar. Meanwhile, the Cardassians are making their plans to transport agents onto the Ligarian ship ...when they travel into the reception through a specially prepared watertight tube connecting the ship to the station. One of the Cardassians is disguised as an Antidean that has a fish head and a humanoid body. Sarek is told scramble communications have been detected between a location in the station and a location outside the station, likely a ship. Perrin offers to use her xenolinguistic skills to help crack the messages. Sarek leaves for the appointment with the Lagarans and he tells the underling to give Perrin full access to the messages and assist her where he can. He will take a full report after and only after the meeting. In a hallway of the station two guards are immobilized with sleeping darts by one of the Cardassian spies. As the spy tries to get past the very well-designed lock Sarek and his assistant Suvin approach. They find the fallen guards, call for medics, call for more guards, and Sarek insists on entering and holding the scheduled meetings with the Lagarans. Sarek unlocks the door and enters. McCoy, who is treating the guards, explains to Spock, who has just entered the infirmary, that the guards were attacked by a blowgun's dart that had a commonly found neurotoxin in it. The dart was designed to break down and absorb into the victim's skin, so there is no evidence left. McCoy conjectures it's the Cardassians who did it. Spock defends them, asking why would they do such a thing when they could lose the trade agreement. McCoy points out that the Cardassians likely have other objectives that are more important than some trade agreement. Spock continues to call baseless paranoia in response to McCoy's astute and correct conjectures. Elsewhere, Perrin translates the messages and realizes they are in Cardassian. She is able to determine three Cardi's names that are Lorjek, Teljan, and Warad. So these three are all involved, but where is the third man they have never seen? She wants to tell Sarek immediately. But after she acknowledges she cannot disturb the meeting with the Lajarans, she decides to foolishly handle it herself by phasing Lorjek alone in his own quarters. OMG! Of course, Lorjek knocks her out when he realizes she knows of Tel'Jon and likely the intercepted communications. Meanwhile, Sarek realizes telepathically that Perrin is in danger, but he cannot interrupt his meeting with the Lagarins. Teljon beams back to Lorjek's quarters and chastises Lorjek for having an unconscious human female in their room. When he finds out she is Sarek's wife, he chokes Lorjek because he knows Vulcan mates are telepathically linked. Doesn't everybody? Lorjek says Sarek is too occupied with the Lagaris to do anything. Teljan puts his fish head disguise back on and tells Lorjek not to screw up anymore and put Perrin on their ship. He goes to the conference. The meeting is over, and Sarek is being told Perrin is nowhere to be found. Sven says the search has just begun. Another person states that she has found Perrin's work, and she sees the transmissions are Cardassian. Sarek says he must return to the Lagarins and asks Spock to assist in the investigation of the Cardassian transmissions, and search for Perrin. Sarek, McCoy, and the rest of the meeting attendees enter the Lagarans' water-tank-filled room. Not long in the proceedings, Taljan, still in the fish-head disguise, lifts his cloak to expose a bright orange jumpsuit. The color is a great affront to the Lagarans, and their head diplomat says, They're out of there! Sarek tries to calm the Lagarans, but also orders security to capture that delegate the disguised Cardassian gets pretty far, but is captured by a female Vulcan with a whip, a la Indiana Jones. The disguise headset falls off, exposing the Cardassian agent. Meanwhile, outside the station, Spock and Suvan are closing in on the Cardassian ship that is trying to make a break for it. Phaser fire is exchanged, and due to Spock's deadly accurate photon torpedo aim, disables the Cardi ship. Inside the station, the Lagarans are still outraged and demand to return to their ship. Sarek is about to let them when McCoy shouts, They poisoned your travel tanks! A lone Cardassian life sign is aboard their ship, and he did the deed. Spock tells Sarek that Perrin is back aboard the station and safe. The Gardassian Lorjek starts spilling the beans about the plot. Teljan breaks free and knocks the traitorous Lorjek into the Lagarin's tank where he dies from the chemically treated water. Spock attempts to force a Vulcan mind meld on Teljan, but in the end he ends up dying of an ingested suicide pill. Spock says the mind meld lasted long enough to tell him That the application for trade was a pretense. They intended to cause an irreparable rift between the Lagarans and the Federation. So with everything now exposed, they wrap up the story where McCoy is chastising Spock for allowing the rift to continue between he and Sarek. Spock thinks to himself, if only the Doctor could understand, some rifts cannot be repaired. Finally, there's a final moment between McCoy and Perrin as they discuss how Perrin thinks she only made matters worse and made a larger rift between them. The end. And, of course, there is a nice little dedication to the memories of DeForest Kelly and Mark Leonard. Right. Very nice. We should tack on. uh... Well, now. Yeah. Yeah, But – Of course, the book just talks about the force sure. Kelly, Charlie Mark Leonard because those those are the ones that had died in the right. recent past. So,
0: but it just seemed seemed coincidental that of the three normal Taz players, it was the three that had passed away.
1: Well, I guess Scotty's not in there, so never mind. Yeah, but still, good point. <laughs> three of the, three of the main characters of this story uh, are have passed on. The actors, right? It's unfortunate, and they were all such good characters. Yeah, I couldn't go into it in my overly long synopsis, but there's all kinds of good things that McCoy is saying. He's got great lines in here. Right.
0: Yeah, kind of like in the, the doctor in that first one. Uh, right. Here McCoy gets a lot of good good jabs. <laughs> right. And then I liked how the fish person, fish people, they, they pointed out that that's McCoy's uh, how do they word it? That, that That's that's his form of grace, is that uh, his his sense of humor.
1: Oh, right. Oh, yeah, th- that humor is a form of grace or something. Anyway, right. They're they very complimentary because they apparently liked McCoy's opening joke right. <laughs> when he met them. Uh, that's yeah. good. So what do you think about the story?
0: I liked it. I I, I was a little leery about a Cardassian story set in this time frame, but it, it really works since it's the beginning of the Cardassian Federation I guess it's going to end up being a war, but uh, this is like the beginning of that.
1: Right, seeing the origins of that. I was fascinated by that because you don't really know exactly the origins of how the Cardassians first came into contact, so this fills a nice little niche in history.
0: Right, Um, and then also as far as a niche in history, I I liked talking about when Sarek married Perrin. Right. I thought that was good because because again that just it just happens you know next generation they're married exactly uh, no explanation as to Amanda or what happened to her or anything
1: right yeah what is really cool about about this book is it's kind of a prequel to several things it's a prequel of course to Deep Space Nine period because we're seeing the origins of how the Cardassians got involved in in with the Federation. They even make references to their plans for Bejor, briefly in this book.
0: Mm-hmm, right.
1: um, so it's a nice little teeing things up almost for the whole TV series. And another thing, it tees up. It's basically the prequel for that TNG episode, Sarek. Right. So in that episode, that's where they talk about the Lagarans too. So do they? I was. I was.
0: Struggling to remember who the Ligarans were. So they've actually been introduced before?
1: Well, yeah. So in that episode, Sarek, he was dealing with the Ligarans again. So what do they say? uh, A ten-year timeout at the end of the the book? Right, right. I'm not sure, but the end of the ten-year period might exactly be where Sarek is again working with them... Uh, which is what happens in the middle of that uh, that Sarek uh, episode, titled Sarek.
0: Right. Which but is this really is close. supposed to be 40 years before Deep Space Nine, which would make it, what, 36 uh, okay.
1: years so, before Next yeah. Generation starts? Right. So apparently... When the 10 years start up again, if it does end up being 10 years, so then doing simple math, we know that Sarek will be spending another 30 years trying to deal with the Lagarans. So is it right. 54 years already? Or 50-something years. Right, that he's already been working with them. He's yeah. already been working with them. That is patience, my friend. Then, 40 years in the future, he's going to be working with them. So it's like, wow. Are these guys worth it? I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're fish people, man. I know. Well, there are fish people that seem to be kind of picky. It's like, get over yourselves, guys. Really. Yeah,
0: he's wearing an orange jumpsuit.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And you're forcing everybody else to wear robes and fish hats that make you look vaguely like a fish. (laughs) Fish hats? Well, yeah, look at the fish. Okay, so you'd have to have the comic, of course, for those of you that may not have the comic. But... All the people that go into the chamber and are in front of the Lagarans have robes and a hat on. And it's all the same headdress. And if you look at the headdress, it reminds me of a fish. Hmm. So it's almost like a like kind of a weak attempt to make the humanoids look a little bit like fish. And it's like, really? You have to make them look like fish for you to want to interact with them? Oh, my God. Right. You yeah, guys I guess are, it, it you does guys does it, are high
0: maintenance. It does make them look a little bit like them because they look like salamanders with the the way the the gills are and stuff. Right, right. And, and I didn't realize it, but yeah, the the headdress has these little tubes or whatever that comes off the back that look a little bit like their gills. So right, interesting.
1: Yeah, the Ligarans Yeah, the lagarins are interesting. The first time I saw the drawing of them, they kind of look vaguely like catfish. Catfish slash salamanders right because they got the kind of flat flat uh kind of face and they got the little whiskers coming out on the sides and stuff it's like man you guys are going through an awful lot of effort for these uh, fish guys okay
0: so in that episode Seric, we never see the Lagarins, right i don't think so because because i don't think i would have remembered that
1: right Yeah, I don't think we see them either because, you you know, with all these tanks and everything and their looks in general, you know, that might have been – that might have been beyond – it might have cost some money to to set all that up in the TV series. Right. Yeah, now the fish face
0: guy that – what's his face dressed up as? um, Oh, that one. (laughs) That one we've seen before.
1: Yeah, I just don't know where. Yeah, and it really is a fish head.
0: Right. I think it was in an early episode of Next Generation that we saw that that design.
1: Right. And probably with that same kind of weird robe. Right. That almost looks like some kind of a uh, like a shower curtain like wrapped around some
0: <laughs> we, Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's you know? exactly what it looked like.
1: Now, uh, if I'm if I'm remembering
0: right, it's the episode with um Looks on a Troy. Oh,
1: had hey, that guy in there, one of those Yeah. People?
0: I think I think she was there to help a delegation of them or something like that. Ah. And I think there was some calamari jokes or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, was that – did, did uh, Worf say that calamari joke?
0: I don't remember. I don't know, something like that. I just remember them making some sort of fish smell joke or something like that.
1: <sighs> right. So um, the first thing I thought when they showed Perrin – and they, you know, so we first see her in this comic, and we see the the drawings of her is number one, hot. She's a cute woman, and number two, incredibly young. I mean, is she even thirty yet? And then, um, and then the next thing I was thinking was, man, I mean, Sarek will probably still outlive her, <laughs> considering how how long they live. But we know from Unification Part One, where Sarek dies, that she's still quite around. So, right yeah I did
0: like that she was so young here because when we see her in the Sarek episode she's already you know about the same age as we we see Amanda in Vanta and uh, maybe the movies right she seems she seemed a little older because yeah, I think or, I think most people who watch the show might not even realize that it was supposed to be a different wife, you know some casual fans right yeah
1: but uh, we knew we knew
0: that that was well, that could not be amanda.
1: I mean, she'd be pretty old with Jane Wyman. Was that the anyway? So she was, you know, she she was no spring chicken in Taz. Right. So ninety years hence, she would be quite old. Well, like right. like quite frankly, like McCoy. But
0: right. So speaking of McCoy being old, um, that was one of the the things I didn't like about the story is that they kept saying that McCoy is the oldest person in Starfleet. Right. Where at this point in time, I don't think that that would be a true statement. I mean, he's not as old as he is in The Next Generation. Um, I find it hard to believe that no other officer in Starfleet has been an officer longer than he has. Right. I mean, I'd be okay if they said one of the oldest or one of the most esteemed or something like that. But to flat out say he's the the oldest, oldest. uh, I I didn't buy that.
1: Yeah.
0: And then the other part I didn't really care for in the story is... The alien's ship that looks like a big salamander (laughs) with the whiskers and everything, and that's supposed to be their ship. So they they model their ship exactly the way they look. Yeah. With flippers and whiskers and eyeballs
1: (laughs) and everything. Sensors. Sensor whiskers. They're sensor whiskers. (laughs) So, I don't know. uh, Our ships don't look like, you know, big naked humans flying around in space, do they? I think you're right. I think you're right. Artistic decision. I don't know. Right. Artistic decision. Speaking of ships, though. It was kind of interesting earlier in the comic. There was a shot of the external of the uh, space station. What Vulcan One or what? I forgot what they called it. But Space One. Well, whatever the name of the space station was. Right. Um, I saw basically the warp sled, or how it looked, in then the shuttle that Spock used in uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Right. And I was thinking to myself, man, that looks exactly like the one from Star Trek, the motion picture. They don't change their designs much. Because it really looked just like it. Um, And then, of course, later, when Spock and the assistant, uh, Sarek's assistant, is engaging the Cardassians that are trying to escape, they're in a ship that, again, looks a lot like Spock's... The one that Spock used, but not quite the same. So, so there's a consistent design ethic, right, at play here uh, with the Vulcan ships, and I, I like that. It's just the first one I saw seemed to be like exactly like the one Spock used before, which and which is kind of cool that they're being consistent like that. But also, you'd think the design would would change over time a little bit, but
0: right, yeah. You still see Excelsior ships in Next Generation timeline, so...
1: True, true, true. That's true.
0: So, I really liked that the Vulcan security guard, that woman, used that bolo-looking thing to uh, whip around the the Cardassian dressed up as the fish person. Right. What are those called? I don't know. Oh, I thought you knew all the names of Vulcan weaponry.
1: (laughs) Why would I do that? No, I didn't. no the, the the cool mod the high tech stuff. Come on, that's my specialty. <laughs> well, no, you
0: you knew what the name of the the weapons that they used in a Muck time and things like that. So I thought, well, maybe you knew this one too.
1: No, I, I don't remember this one. So, uh, um, Ler- Lerpa, I think Ler- Lerpa. Right. Th- that was the <clears throat> that was the staff with the. Uh,
0: the the punching on bag end.
1: on one exactly yeah. and the punching bag on the other end or whatever <laughs> right a little yeah <laughs> little bag you know if you really don't like them you'll use the blade if you kind of like them you'll you'll do the punching bag uh, side uh, I, I don't know what they call this one okay. but it, it is pretty cool yeah it's cool a cool picture of her using it yeah because you could have just had her take out a phaser set to stun and pff, you know game over but uh, using that that thing is a lot cooler
0: right yeah, same thing goes with the blowgun. I didn't understand why he didn't just use a phaser on stun. It seemed right. like a lot of unnecessary complications.
1: Right. However, is it possible that energy-based weapon discharge would be detected by the station's sensors, uh, internal sensors? Yeah, internal maybe.
0: Sensors? Eh, that makes sense.
1: Maybe? I don't know. Plus, like, i had that- to have McCoy something to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and of course... I didn't mention this in the synopsis, but it's actually Sarek that suggests to have McCoy involved. Because, of course, I'm sure they got their own Vulcan doctors on a space station like that. Right. So that's how McCoy got into that picture, which is great. I mean, the more you can have McCoy, the better. Right. Doing something. More time making some smart butt comments. (laughs) All right. And my last comment is
0: just questioning the time frame. So... In this story, they kind of, uh, when McCoy's talking about being at Sarek's wedding, yeah, and he wonders, you know, I haven't, you know, he's thinking of the wedding, and then he, oh, speaking of wedding, where's, where's Spock? So, I thought that that kind of alluded to Spock's wedding, which Picard alludes to in in the movie in the episode Sarek. So. Am I just overthinking it, or was he implying that this is after Spock's wedding?
1: I didn't get that, but I could have missed something.
0: Okay, because I was thinking if it is supposed to be after Spock's wedding, then, then that means Picard would have been here, which means that Picard was in Starfleet 40 years before, before the events of The Next Generation. Probably not. Seems a little little high.
1: Yeah, unlikely. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure what Spock was doing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I will say though that Spock was doing a lot of things in this story that are that seem very out of character.
0: Well, his his
1: dad just replaced his mom, so he's very emotional. Well, oh come on! What is he, 115 <laughs> years old or something? Get over it! It's like, come on you shouldn't be having a problem with this. I mean, the whole idea that Sarek's got himself a hot young wife, you should be happy for him, but whatever. Let's say he's unhappy. So there's one thing that I think is a little unusual. Another thing that's unusual is his stance with the Cardassians. It's like, we have the benefit of hindsight and we know the Cardassians are very bad people. Right. But it's like Spock is really championing their cause and I don't, didn't know why i mean that isn't partially because he's trying to get back at sarek i mean is this really is he that emotionally driven that he would allow a potential security risk situation i don't know where he's coming from now i think it's cool at the end where he says ultimately engagement is going to yield ultimately the better results than isolation and i think he's right right because finally at the end of the story it's like you know what if the Cardassians were more engaged i think they're still poopy people right And i think in the end you got to take care of bad people and get away from them rather than trying to hope you can turn them but if you're going to turn them engagement is the way to do it in the long term but i still don't It just didn't feel right to me. I mean, it felt so not right to me. In multiple things he did in this book is I was starting to wonder if he was another Cardassian spy. So Spock was busy somewhere and they sent another Cardassian spy dressed up as Spock to say all these things. Mm. Because if you wanted to ensure your success, wouldn't you have somebody in power in the Federation saying all the things Spock was saying? He was actively trying to get delegates to accept the Cardassians in you know right. after the the original uh, opening it's like it just it just didn't seem right. but then so many things that Spock said it didn't, especially his sparring with McCoy was so Spock. It's like anyway in the end yeah. my 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 little theory was totally proven wrong, but it was like Spock was doing enough things that was weird here that I I, I just questioned it. Right.
0: So in this frame of reference though, I mean you, you you gotta think that he's been working with the Klingons since Star Trek six. Um and he's also potentially already working with the Romulans and Right. All the bad feelings that the Federation has had with both of those groups, you know, especially with the Romulans, has been because the Romulans you know, had this iron curtain around them that that nobody even knew what they looked like for centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, that maybe you know he was already going down that that train of thought and thought, well, maybe we can prevent the same thing happening with the Cardassians that has happened with the Klingons that happened with the Romulans, right? Uh, just by being more open. So I, I do think that maybe he was pushing it a little too much, especially when he's just flat out arguing with his dad. But right, but. Overall, I thought that, you know, he he had the right idea. But like you said, I knew that he was wrong because (laughs) I've I've seen how how that all turns out.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, we've only seen so far into the future. So, you know, through the next-gen time frame. Who knows? Eventually, the Cardis... I mean, because there are some nice Cardassians, too. So we know they're not all just bloodthirsty treacherous megalomaniacs so there is the possibility of you know a reconciliation ultimately as we've had as you point out with klingons and and the romulans well actually not the romulans they're not our buddies yet but at least with the klingons
0: well they never become our buddies because they blows
1: up yeah well okay now you're getting a different dimension into it so no
0: it's the same dimension
1: in the yeah, Prime okay, fine, universe, fine,
0: fine, fine, they all fine, blow
1: fine. up. But the main point is, <laughs> I thought Spock's behavior was odd enough that I didn't think it was, it was right. Right. But if you take the long-term view, maybe he was right. Something that's great about this story is, it's a little soap opera-y, quite frankly. There's a lot of soap opera stuff going on here. But it wasn't all black and white. And I guess that's what was kind of cool. Right. There is gray there. You don't always know the right way to go, and that played out with two fundamentally different positions being championed by Sarek and Spock so right all quite interesting
0: yeah I thought this whole story was good I thought it, I thought it was you know it had the action adventure spy dynamic it had the family dynamic and then it also had the nostalgia and filling in the blanks aspect yeah. to it so yep. I, yeah overall, I thought this story was great yep really enjoyed it agreed all right anything else?
1: um let's see no that's it
0: alright well then we can go ahead and wrap up uh, maybe this was a short one but we did only have two stories both, yeah, but they both were long. really good
1: they were long there's a lot of detail going on back and forth in mine. right so okay so next week we're going to be uh, getting back to ongoing we've got issues 42 43 and 44 we'll be wrapping up behemoth and beginning the first two parts of a three-parter, Eurydice. Eurydice? Anyway, so that's what we're going to be doing next week.
0: And then the week after that, uh, we'll do The Gorn Crisis, a next-generation graphic novel.
1: Cool, The Gorn Crisis. All right. Yep. I have not, uh, I'm not familiar with that one, so that'll be great. Uh, it ha- I'm going to give you a hint. It has to do with The Gorn. As I would expect. As I would expect. Now, okay. So Next Gen never dealt with the Gorn. Not in the show, no. Not in the show, right. Okay, didn't think so. So the first time we got a more updated look at the Gorn actually was the retro one from Enterprise. Uh, Right, right. right. Okay, so now this story is going to be Picard and company dealing with the Gorn. Cool. Okay.
0: Yeah, I've never read it, but uh, it looks good. I think it deals with... uh... The Gorn life cycle and things like that. So we get, and I'm kind of curious now that we've seen the ongoing rebooted version of the Gorn, right? Especially with the the video game, and, right? And that the Gorn is really made up of different species, and I'm curious to see if maybe that's reflected here, and that's where they got it from. But right, I'm not I'm not uh, holding my breath on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. The first thing that came to my mind is, what are they gonna make them look like? Because obviously, Enterprise did it one way, which was quite different from how they looked in the original TV show. And please, make them look different than the original TV show, even though I love the Gorn from the old original TV show. Really cheesy. Uh, and then, of course, we've got a pretty, a very different take, as you say, with the rebooted storylines. So I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how they even look. How are they going to make them look in this book? I'm probably
0: going to look more like the tv show the Taz one
1: i'm guessing but not just like the tv like i'm sure they'll do they'll upgrade it somehow (laughs) update it a little bit upgrade maybe hope so hope so (laughs) (laughs) okay well I, i might take a look ahead of time quite frankly just i'm curious now and you be curious too and join us on episode 205 when we hit that bad boy right right Okay.
0: All right. Well, then let's let everybody go, and we'll be back next week.
1: Sounds great. Thanks for joining us, everybody. On the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star t comic book review at gmail dot com. Visit us at our website.